All right, this is awesome. Today we, we have all of our elementary kids up, just preschoolers and down. So you guys are, I know a lot of you are really good readers. And so if you want to follow along where I'm going to be preaching from, it's on page 1,155. Look at this. That's for you, Lou, in your pew Bible, 1,155. It's kind of the end of the letter, which is interesting. I don't know, it's kind of weird after spending almost two years on and off in 1 Corinthians today, after this message, our series in 1 Corinthians will be over. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> maybe some of you are ready. Maybe some of you are ready to move on. Woo! Okay. And, you know, last week we looked at 1 Corinthians 16, like the end of the letter where Paul's kind of wrapping everything up, and surely you thought, okay. Great, Chris showed us what was underneath the surface in that. We, we get it. We, um, we understand that Paul was on to some big theological themes. Now, surely he's done with 1 Corinthians 16. But no, we're not. There's actually more going on. We're going to finish it up today. And don't blame me. Blame Paul. He has lots to say in this chapter. Last week, we just covered the first nine verses of chapter 16. And on the surface, they appeared to be just Paul letting people know, like, you know, his travel itinerary and when he could come and pick up this collection he was taking for Jerusalem. But what we discovered is there was so much more beneath the surface of that text because Paul believed that because of the resurrection of Jesus, he and we are living in this new time in history. We're living in the age of the church. It's this age between when Jesus came in the flesh and inaugurated the beginning of the kingdom of heaven we're living in between that time and the time that hasn't come yet when the kingdom will come in full. It's the age of the church. And in that age of the church, Paul believes that, that we, the church, the followers of Jesus, are, our lives are supposed to reflect like an alternate reality, a countercultural. We're supposed to resist kind of the way of the world and show beauty where there's darkness, and, and goodness where there's selfishness, and we're supposed to be walking signs of the times, that the that times have, have changed because of Jesus. And one of the scriptures that describes what this new kingdom is going to be like uh, is Isaiah 60, and part of that, new, that description of the new world tells of a time when Gentile nations, like Corinth and Asia Minor and all those places and us, would bring gifts of wealth to Jerusalem. So you see when Paul is writing about this collection that he's taking of the churches in Asia and Corinth to bring to Jerusalem, he's thinking more than just practical, oh, Jerusalem's in need, I'm taking a gift of money. He's thinking we are actually fulfilling this prophecy of the new world to come out of Isaiah 60. And that's what we're called to be as well. We are called, invited to participate in the kingdom by being signs of the times, reflecting the goodness of Jesus into the world. It's pretty cool. So let's pick up where we left off last week, right in the end of this letter. And I'll invite you to stand. It'll help you keep awake and get us engaged in the text. We're going to just read the, the rest of the letter. So this is 1 Corinthians 16, verses 10 through 24. It goes like this. Now, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work, as I am also. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. But concerning Apollos, our brother, 
I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has the opportunity. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act with courage. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brethren, you know that the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to, for the ministry of the saints, so that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Prisca, they greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Now greet one another with a holy kiss. The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord, he's to be accursed, Maranatha. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your servant, Paul who was so filled with your spirit that he could love even this church, the Corinthian church, throughout all that they put him through and were doing. Lord, would you fill us with such love? Amen. You may be seated. So when Corey and I go on dates sometimes and we get a new babysitter, Corey will sometimes make a list. Uh, it says things like, there's spaghetti for dinner, uh, the noodles are by the stove, the sauce is in the fridge, just warm it up. Um, Samara needs to be in bed by 7.45. She gets two books. She will try and get you to read more than that, just two books. The other two can go to bed at 8.30. Don't let them stall. They will try. Feel free to watch TV, but the kids don't need to watch TV. Make yourself at home. We'll be back around 10. Thank you. You know, something to that effect. Very practical. You know what I'm saying, Lou? I guarantee your sitter gets notes like that too. Okay. This last part of Paul's letter seems to jump around as if he's remembering last-minute details before he's signing off. They may even appear to be unrelated details. But as I have been reading this last section in light of the letter as a whole, I believe Paul is doing more than just tying up loose ends and saying goodbye. I think this guy, Paul... He's still trying to teach up until the last jot and letter of his letter. And here's what I think he's teaching. In light of the gospel, in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and who he's called us to be, be reconciled to one another. Reconciliation. It's what God has done for us through Jesus and it's what we are called to do with one another. Let's face it, with the tragedies in our nation and world, we need reconciliation. We know that there was a group within the Corinthian church that was at odds with Paul. Certain factions seem to even be anti-Paul, which is why Paul's statement in verses 10 through 11 is so important. Paul is sending Timothy, his young apprentice, to Corinth, and he writes, See that he is with you without cause to be afraid. Now why on earth would Timothy need to fear or be afraid if he goes to visit Corinth? 
Because in chapter 4, 17, Paul says that he has dispatched Timothy to Corinth in order that, and I quote, remind you that, that he may remind you of my ways which are in Christ just as I teach everyone in the church. The point being, some people were opposed to Paul's teaching. Paul is sending Timothy to remind them of his teaching. Timothy may be met with hostility because he's coming as Paul's representative. So we see here the first step of what I think Paul's trying to teach us through this example. The first step of reconciliation is trust. Before the Corinthians repent, before they show that they've changed their ways, before they've said things like, we're sorry for being sinful and rebellious, Paul trusts that they will treat his representative well. Not to mention what kind of courage Timothy must have had to walk into this viper's den, right? Reconciliation takes courage to trust somebody else. And I guarantee that Paul is not trusting the Corinthians because they're kind-hearted people. He's trusting in the gospel to do its work of softening their hearts and changing their minds. The second clue about reconciliation is verse 12. Apparently, the Corinthians had requested that Apollos, the gifted preacher, come visit them. And as you may recall, there were factions in the church. Some people were saying, hey, we are all for Apollos. He's the guy we want to follow. Others were saying, we're for Paul. Others seemed to be saying, we like Peter. He's like the real dude in the church. And others were saying, we're so holy, we only listen to Jesus. And they had their little groups that they were fighting about. If Paul were a more fearful man, I think he would have ignored their request at sending Apollos because he might fear that sending Apollos into this church might cause further division. And if Paul were a prideful man, he would have rejected their offer out of concern that the eloquent Apollos may uh, make his own preaching look inadequate. But Paul is humble. And with true humility, he actually encourages Apollos to go visit Corinth. He trusts Apollos, knowing that he's a man of the gospel. See, because for Paul and Apollos, preaching about Jesus and the glory of God for people's salvation is what it's all about. If people wanted Apollos, and they wanted to listen to Apollos talk about Jesus, great! That's good for people. As it turns out, Apollos wasn't free to go to Corinth at that time. Point is, so far, by mentioning Timothy and Apollos, we see two major pillars of reconciliation. We see trust and we see humility. And we see the first move of trust and humility, not coming from the Corinthian church, but coming from the apostle, the one with authority in this relationship. That's usually how reconciliation needs to work. We live in a world of power differentials. Power differentials. Wherever we are, someone has the upper hand of power. If I make a mistake with one of my children, say I lose my temper and I yell for no reason, I don't wait for them to come to me and say, you scared me or you hurt my feelings. There's a power differential in that relationship. I have the power. I'm the, the adult. I'm the parent. It's positional power. 
I'm the one who needs to step out and admit my failure, and I need to ask for forgiveness. The responsibility is mine to trust that my vulnerability and saying I'm sorry will be met with graciousness and forgiveness. It takes trust and humility to step out first and say that we're sorry. In our current national crisis of racism and brutality, the onus is on those of us who are in power to make the first move. Those of us who are white and don't fear walking out the door, who don't fear when I see blue lights in the back of my review mirror, the only thing I'm afraid of is getting a speeding ticket. You know, it does not cross my mind that I might get pulled out of the car and searched and maybe beaten up. It doesn't even cross my mind. But I, my friends that are of color, it crosses their mind every time, and it crosses their mind when their children go outside the house. And this is something that s- some of us with lighter skin color and different, uh, growing up with certain privileges, we just don't, we don't see, and we don't experience. And so there's a, there's a power differential there. And the responsibility is on us to make the first move, to have empathy, to imagine if the situation was reversed. That's what empathy is. Well, how can we do this? How can we grow in trust and humility? How did Paul expect this to happen for the Corinthians? Well, he tells us in verses 13 and 14. He's still teaching at the end of this letter. I love it. Four imperatives and a closing statement. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith, act courageously, be strong, and let all that you do be done in love. Let's take these four imperatives in turn. Be on the alert. That's military language. Remember, much of Corinth was colonized by retired Roman military officers. When a, when a retired, uh, uh, an officer retired from the military in the Roman army, he was given a plot of land. That's what you know, people looked forward to you, like, let me just stay alive till my career gets over. When I retire, I get this plot of land, and finally, I'm a landowner. And so, Rome said, well, here's this crappy little town in Corinth, like, let's give a bunch of these Roman dudes land over there. So, Paul, multiple times in this letter, I've pointed out he's using military language because much of his congregation would get that type of language. Be on the alert. Now, we have seen some ways in this letter that the Corinthians have not been on the alert. They've allowed cultural customs and norms to seep into the church right under their noses. For example, people in Corinth loved to hear traveling speakers called sophists, we've talked about this before, come and talk, and these people were so smooth and silky-tongued, and they could just talk about pretty much anything like our political candidates, and there was more about the package of how things were presented rather than the substance of what was being said. And so the Corinthians started to um, be attracted to certain types of preachers who would say things well with cool quips and turns of phrase, but didn't necessarily have to be anything about Jesus or full of the gospel. And so this was a way that they were not on the alert. They allowed culture to come in right under their noses and influence them negatively as a church. You may have heard me say time and time again, there is no neutral in the Christian life. We are either being formed in Christ or we're being deformed in some other image that's not like Christ. If we are not alert to what's going on, how we're thinking about the world, what influences we're taking in, 
then we're likely to be on a path of deformity. If we're on the alert, then it's going to lead to the second imperative. Stand firm. Be immovable. Dig your heels in. Pitch your tent. Plant roots. Be stubborn. But not just for the sake of standing firm. Still. You could stand firm on lots of You could stand firm on the belief that the Mariners are going to make the playoffs and the Sounders are actually going to win a game this year, but that would be a fool's errand, right? You could stand firm in all kinds of ways, but it wouldn't necessarily be wise. That's why Paul qualifies his command to stand firm with in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. The Corinthians were standing firm, all right, but they weren't all standing firm in the faith. Some of them had gone back to their pagan idolatry, participating in feasts where, and revelry where they enjoyed, uh, you know, sexual licentiousness and all these kind of things like they were before they started following Jesus. They were digging their heels in with Paul. They were standing firm, all right, but they were saying, Paul, what's the big deal? We know that those gods aren't real at the temple. We're just having some fun. But Paul wants them to stand firm in the faith, to draw deeply from the drafts of Scripture, to drink from it, to be like trees planted by streams of water, to bear fruit in season, having leaves that don't wither, prospering in the things that they do, right? Psalm 1. Third, Paul calls the Corinthians to act courageously. This is a passive imperative, which means more like be courageous. Allow the gospel to make you courageous. Let go of your fears from the world and trust that Jesus is your Lord. The Corinthians weren't courageous. Not when they allowed a man who was in open adulterous relationship with his stepmother while his dad was still alive not only take place within their worshiping community, but some of them, Paul implies, were even bragging about it. Like, look how open and free we are as a church. We're so modern, or whatever they thought at the time. That's not courageous. Courageous courageous love stands up to evil and names it for what it is. When you're not on the alert, you won't stand firm in the faith. And when you're not standing firm in the faith, your courage is wrongly directed. Mere courage isn't that admirable. Uh, Suicide bombers in a terrorist group are courageous, but that's not a good kind of courage that just destroys things and hurts people. Paul's fourth imperative is be strong. You don't want a strong person who's deluded, standing firm in bad doctrine, and courageous for a faulty cause. Paul knows this. His commands all fit together, and so he qualifies the four commands with this line, let all that you do be done in love. If all the things that were done in love that Paul has described in chapter 13, that chapter that tells us what love is, we would be serious forces of reconciliation. That's what Paul wants the Corinthians to see, and that's what we can glean from these final greetings. So let's recap just a minute. Reconciliation takes trust, and it takes humility. How do we do this? We've got we to be alert, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, and do all things in love. Now, ever the master teacher, Paul, of course, is going to give an example of this teaching, and he does it through a man named Stephanus. 
To understand why Stephanus is an example, we need to understand a little bit about the client-patron relationship in first century Roman world. In our culture, if a person, uh, a, a patron owns a store, say a convenience store, I'm the patron, I own the convenience store, and uh, Christine is the client, she's going to come in and shop for whatever, toothpaste for your Panama trip, don't forget it. Um, who serves who in that relationship? I serve you. The client gets served. The patron is the one doing the serving. That sounds normal, doesn't it? That's how our world works, right? Clients pay and receive services. Client is always right, right? When I, Mitchell, when you serve me at the coffee shop, I mean, I'm the client, right? You always give me a good treat. Yep. So that's, that's just how our brains work. That's the relationship in our culture. You know what's mind-blowing is, as you dig into how these terms began, it was completely reversed. Patrons in the first century were the ones who were served by clients. In Paul's world, patrons were wealthy and influential, and they attracted clients who were people of lesser status than they were, but check this out, you could not be a client if you were a slave or if you were an artisan, like a builder or a craftsman, or a merchant, if you sold bread or you sold, I don't know, whatever, feed for animals or something like that. The patron would fund lavish meals. They would create public squares. In fact, when you go to the, like the Colosseum in Rome, on, the, on many of the um, the seats, the steps there, you'll find names carved into those stones. Those are the names of patrons who paid for those things. Those are all publicly funded buildings. Um, sometimes the emperor would fund it, but oftentimes patrons would fund a statue or a square in a neighborhood where people would come and gather. And that was not because they loved people, but the patron did those things so that they would garner respect from clients. They would throw feasts and festivals, and the patron would lend their name and their reputation social and political and economic networks. And what do the clients pay? Undying loyalty. Uh, so if you just imagine in your head, let's say that Jennifer here is a patron, and she is, I mean, she comes from a long lineage of, uh, of the Thomas name in this town. It's just everybody knows the Thomases. They're in, they're in, they have legal firms, and they're in the finance, and they own the port, and all of this stuff, and uh, so, so Eric is, is, a, is a client of Jennifer's, and Chuck is a client of Jennifer's, and we'll say Daniel's a client of Jennifer's, and LL, you can be a client of Jennifer's, even though women couldn't be back then, but they couldn't be patrons either, so we're just bending all the rules. But basically what you would do is you would show up every morning at Jennifer's house, and you would come in, and she would have a breakfast ready for you that her slaves, of course, would cook, not her, and you would eat together, but you wouldn't just eat together. You would have a liturgy that you would say, oh, most blessed Jennifer, you were so gracious to us and to this town, and you would just say all these things to puff her up, and, um, and then she would say, well, it's time to go after your breakfast, and you would walk literally down the middle of the street. Other patrons would be doing this as well, and they would have their clients gather around like an entourage and extol their praises and go take care of business. Now, what do you get from that? What you get is protection because Jennifer's got money to pay her taxes. You also get protection if there's any kind of like rivalry, family rivalry she could call people together to protect you, but you also get all her vast networks. Let's say Eric's a business owner. He wants to uh, get into the, the port business a little bit, start a marina. Well, 
boy, you need to know the Thomas family name and get in there. So the, the, it was a beneficial relationship, and it was an entourage. Now, undying loyalty is what the clients would pay to the patron. Imagine now if that relationship existed inside of a church, that you've got, say, four patrons in a church this size, and each of them has six clients, and this patron, well, they are really for Paul. Undying loyalty. doesn't matter what you think. If you're her client, you're for Paul. And then Chad is a patron, and his six clients, he says, no, we are for Apollos. Undying loyalty. This, th- th- those relationships of patron and client might go back generations. Nobody would go against Chad if they were his client. And so you've got these warring factions inside the church. Do you see how toxic that could be inside of a church community? So it's likely that in Corinth, there were secular patron-client relationships in the church. And it was likely that Stephanus was a patron. And it is more than likely that the reason he's listed here is to show what happens when someone is alert, standing firm in the faith, being courageous and being strong and doing things out of love. Stephanus was a secular patron and he transformed that role into something that would serve, and he would use his influence and wealth to build up the church, to support Paul. And all of that is fine and good, but the big clue of his transformation is the list of the two men with him when he goes to visit Paul, Fortunatus and Achaicus. Who are these two men? We have no clue, and that's actually a clue in itself. Their names are distinctly Roman, and they are most likely from the slave class. In fact, Fortunatus is a common name for a slave who had been freed by his master because it means lucky or blessed. Achaicus was another name for slaves who had been freed. It simply means one from Achaia, which is the region where Corinth is in. These people often as slaves didn't have real names. If you remember the book of Philemon, uh, Onesimus just means useful. Like these kids that are brought into slavery, they're just given like these like names that are basically numbers. And so when they were freedmen, they took new names. I'm going to be fortunatus, lucky, blessed. It's pretty common. That means that Stephanus, who had once been a secular patron, had allowed the gospel to transform his worldview and his practice, whereas before he would only be served by clients, come to me, serve me, and he would only surround himself with the upper elite, he had now become a servant for other people. In fact, his traveling companions were slaves or freed slaves, definitely men he would not have associated with in public before. Today, we take it for granted that clients are served by patrons. I think that's because of the power of the gospel absolutely transforming culture in this situation, turning social norms on their heads wherever those social norms are at conflict with with Jesus. Isn't that cool? That's cool. Okay. Paul calls on the Corinthians to honor these men. Before the gospel came in and transformed Stephanus, he was already honored by people because of his position in society, while Fortunatus and Achaicus received zero honor. But now, Paul calls on the church to honor those who labor among you for the gospel, whether they're rich or they're poor. 
So you see, even in these closing salutations in his letter, Paul is still preaching the gospel of Jesus. It transforms every layer of life. In verse 19, he mentions how the churches of Asia greet you, and Prisca and Aquila. That's the same lady who's Priscilla in other books of the Bible. Keep in mind, Paul is writing from Ephesus, which is where? In Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, right? You know what else was in Turkey? Troy. Remember the, the little conflict between Troy and Greece? Like, there's no love loss between Corinth and anybody in Asia Minor. And yet, through the power of the gospel, these churches in Asia send their greeting. You see, the walls are breaking down between these old cultural animosities. Jesus unifies across political boundaries and military history. The gospel reconciles nations and people. And then he says, and by the way, after all these greetings, greet one another with a holy kiss. That is what people did in that culture. In fact, in Panama, we learned, let's see, was it women do the one kiss on the side of the cheek? Guys don't go in for the kiss unless they come into you first, you know, and, uh, but, but I mean, still in some cultures, there's the, the kiss thing going on. And, you know, in our culture, we might say, greet one another with a, you know, what is a holy side hug or something like that. I don't know. But in our, I'm a full hugger, but in our culture, you know, the hug or the, that, that, that type of greeting shows warmth and breaking down walls. But this holy kiss, when Paul tells the church in Corinth to do that with each other, he, it's a move of reconciliation within their church body. You know, to some degree, there's been animosity between Panama and the United States of America. As great as the Panama Canal has been, the way it came about can be seen as exploitative and imperialistic, especially from the French and Americans. Tomorrow, a team of 37 from this church are taking time off work, investing our vacation budgets, and heading to Panama. And we're going to encourage and partner with two Panamanian churches in poorer areas of Panama City. And we're going because the gospel sends us, and we're going and trying to go not as imperialistic Americans. We're trying to go as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're going as learners as much as we're going to teach and to serve. And we're going as partners in ministry, not as clients or patrons. Paul closes his letter by writing the last part in his own hand. As was Paul's custom, and was pretty customary in the time, people used scribes. Uh, I would use a scribe if I was an epistle writer back then, because my writing is so crappy. Um, Paul, it's believed, had eye problems, and maybe that's why he writes in a large hand, as other letters say, because he couldn't see very well. You think about going into all the drafts that he may have written out by hand. By the time he gets comfortable with this letter that he's agonized over to say the right things in the right way, he then hurt, turns it over to a scribe, most likely Sosthenes. Good job, Keeley, saying that word earlier, by the way. Um, and Sosthenes probably had very good penmanship and wrote this letter for Paul. But now Paul is in, in a moment of vulnerability and just, hey, I want you to know how much I care and I'm putting my stamp on this. This, is, this last part is in my own hand. And he closes with sobriety and grace. Both of those terms are aspects of love. Love of the Lord would encompass this whole letter. If you love the Lord, you would be in agreement with what Paul has written. If the Corinthians stand against Paul, it's not Paul they're contending with, it's the Lord. But Paul being Paul won't end in a warning. 
He won't end there. He begins his letter, as Keeley read earlier, with words of grace, and he's going to end it now with the grace of the Lord and his own personal expression of love for this church. Earlier in the letter, Paul tells the Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate the Lord. Now we see why he can say this. Paul has become so transformed by Jesus that he can love this church who has opposed him at nearly every turn. He has decided to be who Christ said he is, redeemed by Jesus, adopted into the family of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, to the point that Paul was a living sign of the times. And that's what you're invited to be as well. Would you pray with me? Lord, I'm tempted to say I am in awe at Paul and his patience and the depth of his love, at his humility, at his lack of ego and pride. But I'm sure if he were standing here and I said that to him, he'd be the first to point to you and say that it's your work in him. That it's your power made perfect, perfect in his weakness. I'm so thankful for that, Lord, for that reality. Because while we may not be able to identify with Paul, we can identify with weakness. Thank you that you're a God who knows us intimately. You know our shortcomings. You know it so well that you died for us because it was the only way. Help us, Lord, not to dwell on the ways that we fall short, but to embrace the vision of the life you want to give us, a life of wholeness, a life of beauty, a life of contributing positively in our relationships, of being reconcilers and not fearful. Breathe that life into us, Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.